Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Welcome everyone to episode eight for the School of Unlearning podcast. Today we're sitting down with my friend, Laura Adler. Laura Adler is a certified holistic health coach and environmental toxins expert. With over a decade of experience under her belt, Laura is a sought after voice and mind in the world of functional medicine and environmental toxins. Laura designs courses for clinicians and health professionals and also everyday people looking to improve the health of their home beyond the plate. Laura's big mission is to encourage and empower enough individual people in the world to make changes in their own lives and demand change from industry so that industry has no choice but to respond by creating cleaner, safer products. Laura realizes that small change is big and that we can't address all exposures to harmful chemicals, but we can significantly reduce the exposure to the worst ones. And one of my favorite quotes from Laura, and she's full of quotes, is this one. Let's control the things we can control so we worry less about the things we can't. And I think that this quote epitomizes not only what you'll hear in this podcast interview, but again, her work at large. And if you follow Laura on Instagram at Environmental Toxins Nerd, you know that she's vulnerable. She shares quite a bit about her life. But this podcast isn't necessarily about toxins. It's about the journey that Laura has taken, the unconventional, nonlinear path that she's taken to create um, a, a business and a life that is rich in meaning and is constantly changing. So enjoy this podcast and uh, please follow Laura on Instagram and Facebook. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the School of Unlearning, friend. Hi, friend. It's been it's been a while, actually. It has. I think it's been actually we had a we had a matcha date for those of you who are listening. We're friends from back in 2012, I think, is the first time we met, or 13. I, it was right before I left New York City, so we met at what was that cafe in Brooklyn? That yeah, had, it was like a vegan cafe that was, was like, like uber vegan expensive. and gluten free, and it was like one of the few. It was like new. Anyway, we met there, um, even though we. How did we even meet? I don't actually even remember. I was thinking about this in the shower this morning. Yeah. <laughs> shower thoughts. Um, yeah, I was like, I was thinking about that. I was like, we went to, we got like, I don't know, snacks and coffee. And I think I followed you because you were just launching like your work in environmental toxins. And I had yeah. just started uh, my business as a health coach, holistic health coach. And I was like, okay, genius friend, brilliant mind, really cool niche. I need to connect with this person. And then I found out you're a cat mom and I was like, oh, well, we'll be friends for a long time. So yeah. it yeah, worked out, but we've, my life. yes, your cat's matcha, which is just like the best, um, name ever. So, uh, we'll dive She's, into matcha's life. I actually life didn't too. come up with that name. Um, I have to give credit to my cousin who mm -hmm. knew that I was like a matcha tea like obsessive person. I've mm -hmm. been drinking matcha at this point for like 15 years. Um, yeah. And I sent her a picture of my cat the day I adopted her and she didn't have a name yet. And she was like, oh, what should I, what are you going to call her? I was like, I don't know. She goes, how about matcha? Because her eyes are the color of a like a no. good matcha latte. And yeah. that's, that is, yeah, she's a babe. She's the, she's the most beautiful. Yay. Well, Not I, to I'm, say I'm Jersey, biased to, to yes. Josie, but you know. <laughs> Um, we can bring our cats on at the end if we feel inclined. Um, or sometimes they just jump on the com computer and like take over the screen. So, 
But, um, you know, I thought about when I'm launching this podcast, not only did we connect back then, I was like really just impressed by your work and also your attention to detail in like a really big world of environmental toxins, but also, you know, just the way that you're navigating the space of health and you have evolved in your your voice and also your offerings over the years. I've taken a few of your courses and they very much change the way I look at um, the world around me, like my kitchen utensils, the products I use. And so I think tactically it's changed the way I show up in the world. And when I was health coaching, I definitely used a lot of those elements with people. Um, But, you know, on the school of unlearning, I feel like there is a nonlinear path that allows us to get to where we are today. And that path, you know, I do want to talk about your work, environmental toxins. I have people messaging me, asking questions about what to use in the kitchen and everything like that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I want to kind of talk more about Laura, the person and, you know, how you got to be where you are. And so I feel like I'm going to learn a little bit about you too in this podcast, because there's some questions I want to talk to you about. Let's, so, yeah. yes, thank you. And tell me about life for you growing up. Where did you grow up? And who are some influential people that kind of helped shape the way you saw the world? Yeah. So, um, this, this is interesting. So I, you know, I grew up in Connecticut, um, uh, in a fairly affluent community. Um, you know, we weren't necessarily a super affluent family, but we were, we had, we had what we needed, right. We were, we were fine. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I just remember, you know, students, uh, fellow classmates of mine, like would get a new car when they turned 16. Like we had one car in our family, like we were fine. We had a nice car Mm -hmm. anyway. So, um, you know, I grew up with, you know, my, my, um, with my brother, which is my brother and I, um, and, um, really primarily raised by my dad. You know, my parents split when we were really young and my dad raised us. And I definitely think, and I'm going to kind of change the the, the framing of your question about like who was something that was really influential to what was something that was really influential because one of the things that I think really um, was different about my childhood um, than most people that I knew was that I traveled internationally from when I was a really little kid. So I've been to more countries in the world than I have states in the United States mm-hmm. in my own country. Cool. And, you know, the the um and it was because my dad did it business internationally and as a single dad like he would try to coordinate his business trips with our school breaks so that we could go with him and so as an example in um i think it was in it was in 1985 which i think i was in fifth no i was in third grade mm-hmm. mrs seskin was my teacher um <laughs> Shout out. Uh, and all of my classmates, shout out to Mrs. Eskin. I don't remember very much about her that she, other than she had a perm. Um, and that um, my classmate, Brett Pesson, threw up um, Applejack cereal all over her desk one day. Um, mm. Sadly, I reminded him of that um, senior year in high school, and he was not happy about that memory. Sorry. Yeah, core me- that's Sorry. a core memory, it sounds um, like. Anyway, <laughs> it's just one of those things that you, you don't. I'll, you don't forget those things. Anyway, yeah. so in 1985, when all my classmates, they were on their summer breaks, were going to Club Med. That was the like, oh, look at us, we're getting braids in our hair, we're going to Club Med. I was um, visiting the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. That's where mm-hmm. I was that summer. So wow. like real different. Yeah. Real different. Yeah. And my dad would, you know, he had meetings all day. He didn't have time to like entertain us. 
And so we would literally check into our hotel, you know, get dinner. And then the next morning, as he's on his way out to the meeting, we would Mm -hmm. go to the front concierge desk and look at the tours and go, what tour can we plop you on today so that you're occupied and, 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 you know, have somebody, you know, uh, chaperoning you. And so it was, let's go here, let's go there, let's do this tour. And so, you know, throughout my whole childhood, you know, India, Nepal, um, all, all over Southeast Asia, um, you know, China, um, uh, Macau, the island of Macau, Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia, uh, Vietnam, like you, uh, 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 India, um, uh, Turkey, all over Europe, like that was a really different childhood. And so I think that right from a a pretty young age, um, that exposure to different people, uh, the way that people live totally differently. Um, You know, I remember being in India as a little kid. I mean, I was, maybe I was a freshman in high school or something, but um, you know, Mm -hmm. oh, there's somebody with elephantitis and gangrene just begging on the street. Like, in Westport, Connecticut, where I grew up, like that is not something that you see. And so I just feel like that experience, even though it was, there were parts of it that were scary as a little kid. Um, I mean, I remember my brother and I flying, I think to Hong Kong by ourselves to meet my dad there. And we were in middle school, you know, like that's kind of a big, that's a big trip for a middle schooler to take on their own connecting flights and everything. Um, and I, I do really feel yeah. that that shaped a lot of my worldview. Um, I, I, I can't precisely pinpoint and define how, but I know that that's shifted a lot or, or shaped a lot of um, how I see the world from this kind of zoomed out bigger picture perspective, rather than the little like microcosm mm-hmm. of the single town that I grew up in and spent my whole life in. And like a lot of people have that experience yeah. and they don't see anything beyond their own bubble. Um, mm-hmm. So that I think was probably one of the most, I didn't, it, I, 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 I would wager that I didn't understand the, or couldn't formulate the idea that it was a profound experience at the time. It was just what I did. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, I remember being in, I was probably still in middle school going to Singapore and go walking through the Tiger Bomb Gardens where they have these carved, I don't know if they're still there, this was decades ago, these little carved, this like a display of these carved figurines depicting like extreme torture, like being stretched, hmm. you know, being cut in half. Like, I don't know wow, what yeah, it wasn't... the hell it was. <laughs> no, yeah. But I was like, wow, this is, this is fucking dark. <laughs> um, yeah. I remember being in China this was when I was in high school and we were in Guangzhou in a little rural village walking through the middle of an open air abattoir where chickens were being slaughtered and, you know, dismembered and organs separated into this bucket. And at the time it was vegan. So that was a, that was a special moment. Um, Well, you got some good data as to why you wanted to remain vegan, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yes, and. But, you know, it was, it Mm. was, um, I think that was, frankly, one of the biggest things that, that kind of shaped how I see the world was that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, A, I never knew that. So thank you for sharing. I'm curious, what did your dad do that brought you all over the world? 
Oh, um, so it, it actually, there's a, an irony here um, based on what I do now. So he's a, he's just a consultant. Mm-hmm. He's an international marketing consultant. And he works um, at least for the last 20, 25 years, maybe um, works for uh, companies that manufacture nonstick coatings. That's the irony because I teach about how toxic that's ironic. Um, I would say. Yeah. So um, in housewares and industrial applications. So for example, like the blades of a wind turbine have nonstick coating on the blades and on the gears one. So that at the higher elevation where they're at, where the uh, temperatures can freeze that the ice doesn't jump, jam up the gears, ice doesn't stick, but also, you know, all the birds that they chop up. So those things don't stick too. So like, there's lots of applications for nonstick. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. so um, yeah, so and so a lot of his, um, you know, manufacturing customers or clients or, or people that he was trying to um, connect with the company that he consulted for were all over the, you know, in Asia, all over, um, you know, the Middle East, and so that's where we, that's where we traveled. Wow. And I'm curious, what does your dad think of your work now? Have you guys talked about that? I'm sure. Um, You know, I think he does. I think like most parents, like they don't get it. Like he doesn't, he sort of gets it, but he doesn't really get it. And that's okay. It's, you know, it's, you know, one of the things, speaking of things that we learn and unlearn, one of the things that I really quickly had to learn in stepping into this space, talking about environmental toxicity and, and, you know, exposures that we're getting day in and day out. And this is something that I have to teach to my students is that our friends and our family are not who our businesses are for is not our responsibility Mm -hmm. to convince anyone of every, anyone of anything. Um, We are here to guide people that are interested and, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to kind of come to terms with because our friends and our family are the people that we want to impact the most, but they are the people that listen to us the least because of that Mm -hmm. dynamic. And so trying to push any information, whether it's about, you know, using air fresheners or the food that they're eating or smoking or whatever it is, trying to push that on a family member is typically met with resistance and like, don't tell me what to do because I'm not going to listen to you because you're just my dumb sister or you're my dumb whatever. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. it's like, okay, I, I, you're just gonna have to let that mm-hmm. go. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't, we don't get into it. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm happy you're in that space. Um, I'm so curious though. I have a few questions around your, your childhood, but, um, when you would go away to these countries and experience all these things, see all these things that were definitely, um, that, that was a unique experience. You know, I was, yeah. uh, we, I was the youngest of seven kids and we had one week a summer we would spend at the Jersey shore. And that was a big deal. I think once we went to like Disney world and that was a big deal. Um, and so, yeah, my worldview was shaped by like New Jersey and maybe a dash of like Connecticut and Pennsylvania on a good day. So I didn't have a worldview until literally like college, post-college. So when you would come back to Connecticut and go back to see friends at school and talk about your summer trips, did you have a hard time integrating and, or like connecting with friends who were at club med? Um, it's a good question. I don't, I don't actually know. I mean, I think I remember that, um, I don't, I don't, yeah, it was that, it was that year, 1985, when I went to the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea, which was also scary, by the way, 
because there's just like not a yeah, kid zone. Yeah. And we had to go watch a movie about like, hey, don't look at the North Korean guards that are armed and don't make faces at them because like they can't shoot you and we can't stop them. So, okay. Oh I was like, okay. <laughs> but we got to go in the room with the tape dividing the, the, the tape down the center of the table. And that's yeah. the literal divide. Anyway. Um, wow. Uh, that was the, that was the year of like pound puppies and Reebok sneakers. Like that was what was all the rage. Mm. And so South Korea is, and at the time, and then I don't think it's quite like this. I think these markets have been shut down, but at the time it was like knockoff central. So you want to have a North face jacket without paying North face prices. You want beanie babies that aren't real Mm -hmm. beanie babies, but that are like close. You want a cabbage patch kid that looks a little bit like a cabbage patch kid, but it's not. South Korea was the place to go. Mm-hmm. So I remember basically buying these knockoff beanie babies for my friends because they were a dollar each. And I mean, I was like, oh yeah. Yeah. And I also remember yeah. you, like, you were literally like so direct stoked. access to the black market. Oh yeah. I was, I remember being so stoked for the Reebok sneakers that I got. And then, um, yeah, and and except I remember I came home from that trip and one of the pairs of sneakers that I bought they gave me two left shoes so I never got to never got to wear them. That was a bummer. Um, mm. But you know, so I think that there was like I don't know if I I ended up having to kind of tailor like what'd you do over the summer? Oh, I went to Korea. People were like, I don't even know what that is, right? And so I just mm-hmm. was like, I yeah. don't know. Here's a beanie baby. Like, you know, I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't think as eight year olds, um, we were having in depth, like thoughtful conversations about what they did over the summer, Mm -hmm. what we did, did over the summer. Maybe I don't, Yeah. maybe you did. I didn't have those conversations. So I don't know. We weren't having that conversation um, though. No, I don't think so. It was just kind of like, well, it's just what I did. And nobody asked me, nobody was like, oh, I'm curious, what are other cultures like? Because we're eight and we don't know anything other than Madonna and pound puppies and Reebok sneakers and whatever else was rad in 1985. Yeah, super fair. I don't remember having any like super in-depth conversations as a kid about my summer either, but you know, I just was curious about that integration piece. Um, so it did change your worldview. You're still sort of in some ways gathering how it changed your worldview, but it did give you this sort of 360 zoom out perspective of the world. Oh yeah. I'm curious actually what brought you into the space of environmental toxins and health? Like, was there a pivotal moment where you decided I'm going to put my attention there and begin to dabble in that world? Um, so yes. And so this will be a fun story. So, um, I'm going to, I'm going to back up from your question to actually go back to your first question. Cause I think there is another component here that in, in, as I reflect on my life, I'm 44 and I'm like, Oh, this is, I'm how much of a deviation have I made from where I was when I was 16 or 25? Mm-hmm. Like how different am I? I'm very different in a lot of ways, but I'm exactly the same in others. And so one of the, like, if, you know, to go back to the question of like, what was the most influential thing? Like certainly that international travel as a kid was one of those things. The other one, which seems kind of silly, but really in reality, I don't think is, um, is, you know, I, I grew up in the punk rock, hardcore, indie rock music scene. That was what I was interested in when all of my classmates or most of my classmates were into like whatever top 40 and ZZ Top and 
I don't know why I'm only making 80s references, but um, uh, <laughs> I, that was my scene, right? Like my first concert was Susie and the Banshees because she was like mm. my everything. I was like, oh, no, she's so rad. And mm-hmm. um, and it was like Susie and Banshees and my life with a thrill kill cult. And that was in like 1990. And, and that was... Mm-hmm that was the world in which I grew up in. And then when I sort of morphed from that, like, you know, British joy division, the cure on um, that kind of Susie and the Banshees, that kind of realm into like American hardcore music that was, um, you know, punk and hardcore mixed. It was a, um, uh, a, a culture. It was very much a bro culture. Um, so one mm-hmm. being raised by my dad and my brother, I just kind of had a more um, masculine vibe, I guess, just because that was, frankly, I got teased for being girly as a kid. So I was like, well, then we're just not going to do that. By We're going to do baggy pants. By whom? Your brother and your dad? T-shirt. Yeah. Just like, yeah, not like, not like mean teasing, but teasing like, oh, you're wearing a skirt. I can see your knees. And then I'm like, you know what? That's just. fucking took the wind out of my sails so like why would you that's not cool and i didn't really obviously it's funny it's like i don't know how to vocalize that shit but yeah no i remember feeling and hearing similar things as well yeah all right so so tell me i feel like we're onto something here the culture of music the bro culture tell me more yeah so the a the that 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 culture which was very rooted especially in the hardcore scene in being straight edge and vegan meaning no drugs or alcohol and like no animal products so super vegan they were very animal rights but the the ethos of that was very much like a fuck the man down with the man right Mm -hmm. and also Mm -hmm. like i'm gonna stand up for the little guy right i'm gonna fight for what's right and that was something that I think always stayed with me because I felt that like that actually kind of strummed a chord in me that I was like, yeah, that feels right. That feels right. Mm-hmm. And so um, that is actually what pushed me towards vegetarianism and then veganism. I mean, I, I was vegetarian the summer before high school and then was vegan. I ended up being vegan for 18 years. I'm not that way anymore. One thing I certainly had to unlearn was that that's mm-hmm. not for everyone. It was not Mm -hmm. for me anyway. um, And so, but that space of like, you know, oh, I'm vegetarian or I'm vegan. I have to learn to cook my own meals because at the time, this was in the early nineties, like there wasn't vegan options at restaurants. Mm -hmm. There was maybe a vegetarian option or two. So I had to learn how to cook. And so that really pushed me into getting into food. And then Mm -hmm. I started reading books about animal agriculture and like farming And I was like, wow, this is really messed up. And Mm -hmm. so um, I was just, it kind of organically flowed into this, like, I'm into food. I'm a food person. I like cooking. I wasn't always, I was definitely not the healthy vegan in, you know, in the beginning. I was the person that um, would eat the, like, you know, Betty Crocker cake mix that was, like, vegan by default is what I used to say. Because there's no actual real food in there. So, and like Taco Bell, bean burritos, because that's what you did in 1992 in high school was you ate Taco Bell that you always lived to regret. So, 
because nobody, always nobody should be eating Taco Bell. Anyway, um, and so that sort of pushed me into this uh, unintentionally into the health space. And so I was, okay, let me keep going on that. Let me read more about nutrition to make sure that I'm not messing myself up somehow adopting this way of eating. And so I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is pretty cool. So, so, you know, post high school, I'm into college. I'm the person that's like, um, I, I don't drink. Right. So I was an anomaly in the college scene. Cause I was like, yeah, I don't drink. Like I go to hardcore shows. I go to punk shows. Um, uh, there was like one punk girl in my college. I went to a really small women's college in Boston and we quickly became friends. Cause we were like, Hey, you're, you're cool. You're also cool. Like let's hang out. Um, but, but I was the person that was like making vegan banana chocolate chip coconut muffins in my dorm um, main hall kitchen because the mm-hmm. I was required to be on their stupid food plan, but I couldn't eat 90% of what was in there. So I was like, well, I'll make my own food and then I'm going to petition. If you're going to make me pay for your meal plan, you better have rice milk or soy milk for me because I can't. So I was that person, right? Yeah. I was a little I bit of the it. squeaky wheel. Yeah. And so, Mm -hmm. but I never, it literally never once dawned on me to pursue anything in that space professionally. Um, I was really into photography um, all through high school. I minored in photography in college. I did all, you know, most of my actual classes that I remember in college were all photography classes. And so after college, I got a job in the photography field um, in stock photography, which is not the actual taking of photographs, which I just didn't have the self-confidence mm-hmm. to do. Um, it was just selling, you know, and licensing stock photos. And I got a job as an intern in this photo agency. Um, and then long story short, I spent seven and a half years in that field in stock photography, doing mm-hmm. sales, um, editorial sales, corporate sales. Wow. Um, and, you know, I was good huh. at it. Uh, and it took me a took me a a while to recognize that being good at something and liking it are not the same thing. Not the same mm-hmm. thing. So I was good at my job, and I was I I extracted pleasure from the fact that I was good at my job, but at the end of the day, I didn't like it. And so I used to casually refer to the work that I was doing as quote unquote, contributing to the garbage of society. It's a bit harsh. Huh. It's a little bit harsh, but yeah, it just yeah. didn't That's feel like critical, it was but... mean, meaning, it just didn't feel like meaningful work. Like, oh, I'm selling a stock photo of whatever to a textbook publisher like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's necessary work. We need to do that. Right. Like there are people that need to do that. For me, it just didn't, it didn't, I was like, this sucks. And so, but I was also the person yeah. while I was in that space that I was, this is when I was in New York, I was taking classes in that natural gourmet cooking school. I was doing all of, I was the farmer's yeah. markets freak. And so I was like, mm-hmm. and I was like, you know, I was learning to make all of these foods from scratch in my tiny, tiny New York City, Queens apartment with one of those half stoves. Love it. It's not even a full-size yep. stove where in order to open the oven door all the way, I actually had to open the fridge door. Classic New York, right? Um, yep. And so, True. you know, I was unhappy. <laughs> it was so dumb. Um, but I was unhappy in, in that field. I just didn't care about it. And I remember I had three different people at three different 
points over probably a year and a half say, oh, you should check out this, this, there's a school here and it teaches you how to be a health coach. And because I grew up in the, because of my upbringing, my knee jerk reaction was like, that's hippie shit. That's not for me. That's what hippies do. Mm. And like, you know, Mm. I was like pretty anti-hippie. And so um, finally, like the third time somebody was like, you should check out this, this program. I was like, fine, check it out. (laughs) And then I looked at it. I was like, oh, actually, that's pretty cool. Um, I learned that that's basically how I live my life. I'm real resistant to new ideas until Mm -hmm. I adopt it as my own. And then I'm like, that's a great idea. Much to the chagrin of my friends and family sometimes, but whatever. (laughs) So that's ultimately... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. So I feel like I'm like, as I'm piecing together your story, a lot of this is new. Some of it is not. I know that you did go to IIN, same as me. And we actually, I don't think we crossed paths at Natural Gourmet, but we both study there in some capacity. So, Um, but as I'm listening to your story, I'm like, wow, so much makes sense. And also still some is so much of a mystery to me too. Like your resistance to, you know, becoming a health coach, like seems odd to me because you were at the farmer's market and you were the one who was dabbling in veganism, mainly for different reasons though, from the music culture. But, um, it, one thing that stands out is I feel like you took from a very young age, kind of like the road less traveled. Um, like you, you weren't doing the normal shit that kids your age in Connecticut or even in, you know, the photography industry were doing. You had sort of the secret life that was sort of lighting a fire under you and keeping your your sort of soul alight. And um, I'm just curious when when you decided to bring that full into like its full existence for you. Yeah. So I think it it I stepped into the health coaching space um, basically around the time that I was reaching the absolute end of my proverbial rope in the photography industry because it just wasn't for me. Like I just didn't care. It was so unpleasant to go to work every day. I worked at a really shitty agency where, you know, my boss who was 10 years younger than me was like this arrogant little whip snap that I couldn't stand to look at his face. It was not a good place to work. And I remember I Um, This was a real turning point for me. I had a rotator cuff impingement and I had to have surgery on my shoulder. And um, so I was out, you know, for a week or whatever. And then I had physical therapy and I loved that I had physical therapy because it meant I had to show up to work late and I had it like two or three times a week. So I was like, ah, yes, a, a reprieve from having to go to this job that I hate doing work that I just don't give a shit about at all. Yeah. And so physical therapy ended, but I continued to have to go to physical therapy. Sorry for everybody, anybody who worked at that company. They hated me there. I don't care. Anyway, I just, I couldn't go to job. I couldn't go to my job. I just hated it. It was miserable. And I remember I'd go on these message boards. When I arrived at work, this is like the least professional I've ever been in my whole life. And I would, rather than logging into the computer system in the for the company, I would log on to these like stupid message boards that I was on and like, be like, guys, do you get unemployment if you get fired? Cause I was like convinced I was going to get fired. <laughs> and then I did. Yeah. And I was like, yes. And the first thing I did was go to the message board and be like, guys, I just got fired. And it was like the greatest, like I walked out of that. I mean, first of all, I gave a big fuck you to the boss because he was such a prick. Sorry if people don't like swearing. <laughs> Not sorry. Um, no, it's all good here. So we, we swear. I literally walked, <laughs> I literally walked out of that job 
like the day I got fired, like on cloud nine, spring in my step. I had no clue what I was going to do, but I was like, I don't, at least I'm not doing that. I just couldn't yes. do it. It was soul sucking. It was the epitome of, of office space. Right. And so I was like, yeah, get yeah. me out. And so I was like, okay, I need to, I still need to pay rent. I live in New York city. And so I, I downshifted into, um, working in childcare because I did that all through college. I was an, I worked as a nanny for a really wonderful family. Um, and it was only supposed to be part-time, but then I was, this is when I was getting those nudges to look at health coaching. And I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to look at it. And so I, got full-time work with the family that I was nannying for so that I could pay for IIN. And so I was already mm -hmm. in this free fall transition where I was getting, you know, cash under the table as a nanny. I was working at a little vegan cafe while I was going to do this training on health coaching. And, and that was the, like, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but it can't be that. And so I, yeah. I left, mm -hmm. I just walked away from the eight, seven and a half years that I only job that I'd ever known. Um, but I was, you know, I'm, I'm a self-starter. Um, I think I'm pretty smart. Um, I think I see the world, you know, my dad as a, as a, I think this also shaped a lot of who I am now, you know, my dad as an independent consultant, he worked from home. So my whole childhood was him working from home and I was his office assistant and his secretary from when mm -hmm. I could read and write. So I mm -hmm. was the, well, I got to do file all his files and, you know, I'm eight years old or whatever. And so whether I wanted to or not, I did have a crash course and like, this is how you be responsible and take care of business. And this is how you think and are detail oriented and, and really meticulous with detail. I mean, you mentioned that's one of the things that you noted about my work. And I think some of that comes from, you know, having to be meticulous because if I messed up something with my dad's files, it was like, that's really bad because this is his business yeah. and I can't mess something up. Yeah. So, yeah. And his business um, had and, like, his business was in international effectively consultant relations with like South Korea. So you couldn't really yeah. mess up things like that. Um, yeah. And just, you know, Oh, I need that document and you know, whatever. Anyway. So that detail oriented thing was just, it's just part of who I am for better or worse. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do this health coaching thing. And um, I was doing that for a couple of years, kind of trying to figure it out because you don't really know what you're doing when you're starting a business like that. Like everything is a hundred percent new. And as I like to say, 100% of everything you're doing, you're doing for the first time, even if you're doing it for the second time, because it's the mm. first time you're doing it for the second time. It's the first time you're doing it for the, it's like, it's a little bit silly, but I'm like, no, no, everything is new. A hundred percent of the time you're doing it new a hundred percent of the time. And so I like that. I was, yeah. I was just figuring it out. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I mean, the number of, Mm -hmm. stupid stories that I had of like the first workshop that I was doing on like seasonal eating. I literally, no. and as a New, York, it's as a cute New Yorker, it's, like, it was a big part of, you know, well, the irony is, well, two, one, two things. One is what was so stupid was I literally, and as a New Yorker, you'll, you'll get this. I literally was like walking around Manhattan with a stack of color flyers. And that was my like, wow, I, I'm in, I'm a real business now. I made color copies. Those were expensive. Aww. And I didn't have any yeah. idea of where to put them. So I literally was putting these um, flyers 
on phone booths and in laundromats. And this particular mm -hmm. one was an emotional eating workshop. And I'm like, who? thinking back, I'm like, who the fuck's going to be like, oh, I have emotional eating. I'll just take that tab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but I just want to, I want to stop you there just because like what you're sharing for a lot of people who listen to this podcast are generally health oriented um, and mainly yeah. just in the food space and health broadly. I just think that it's actually such an entrepreneurial spirit that you had. Oh, yeah. And also you had sort of like a bit of like this meticulous corporate, like get shit done mentality from your dad growing up. And I just want to say shout out to the scrappy, you know, Laura, who's putting <laughs> color flyers out there 15 some odd years ago, because, you know, I was yeah. doing the same thing too. I remember having my first yeah. brochure and I was like, I'm legit. I have a business. I have yes. a website. Like, and it is, it's absolutely a milestone in everything. And I think that stuff needs to be like also celebrated too, because it's, you know, what is a business? What does it even mean? Like to me, it is, there's lots of answers, but it is those little profound moments where you're parading yourself down New York city. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I want to help people. And I think that that's a really sweet moment just to highlight yeah, and also it, like, go you, you, well, you're, you know, <laughs> scrappy. Well, but I also think, you know, and this comes from the perspective of having lived experience on a lot of it, is that like, you never know when you're walking down the street and someone's putting up a flyer or doing something else. Like, is this their first time? Like, are they, do mm -hmm. they have like a lot of gumption and they're putting it all out there? Like, we never know. I mean, there's mm -hmm. that expression that like, you know, everybody's fighting a battle and you never know and be kind to people. And, and, and because everybody's got a stop anybody on the street and ask them about a tragedy and every single right. person has some devastating tragedy right and so I kind of think about that that's my zoom out it's like oh there's a person putting up a flyer but like what's the story there like what are they doing and is yeah. that a, is this a turning point for yeah. them like I just think that kind of perspective is cool but here's the thing that I that I want to um mention because this was something that I found a couple of four years ago so four years ago I went back to Connecticut where I grew up it was my dad's 80th birthday and you know like when you go back and visit your childhood home you kind of poke through your remaining lingering items from childhood that are in the bedroom that you never took with you when you moved into adulthood you know all my Barbies right. with the hair shaved off and the legs shit, just weird shit from high school. And I found a box of index cards from high school when I was doing, I mean, I was, this was in 1992. So I was a sophomore, junior in high school, a sophomore. Um, and it was a, a report on vegetarianism because I was veg getting uh, vegetarian at the time. Um, and I randomly, shit you not, I randomly picked up an index card because this was the, this was how we did our, our citations and references for our papers was our big box mm -hmm. of index mm -hmm. cards. Good I ladies. remember. Yeah. And so yep. I randomly pick up this index card and it was a quote and I don't remember it verbatim, but it was basically like more and more people are turning to a vegetarian diet in part due to the increasing use of toxic chemicals in the environment. Wow. And so I read that four years ago, but this was something I'd written in 1992. And I was like, huh, that's pretty fucking wild. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. It was on your radar in some small way so, back then, you know? In some way that like, and then it just kind of fell into the background. And then when it rose up again, which now 25 minutes later, whatever, to answer your question from 25 minutes ago is 
you know, I started doing health coaching. I was still just doing the, you know, eat kale, drink water, go to sleep at whatever time, <laughs> blah, 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 the, the ultra, oh, ultra man. basics. And, you know, there was two things that was happening. One, you know, uh, most of my clients were coming to me for weight loss because I didn't know anything about having a business niche or anything like that. And I didn't know how to market myself. And that's what people thought that what a health coach did. So that's the people that I worked with. And most of them, they had success, Mm -hmm. they lost weight. And then I had like one or two clients that they, they were actually really, um, uh, they did all the things, um, and they didn't lose any weight. And I was like, huh, like, what am I doing wrong? Like, what am I missing? And so that Mm -hmm. kind of sent me on this exploratory path to be like, what, what am I missing? Um, and at the same time that that was happening, my, um, sister-in-law was pregnant with my niece and, um, I started researching because at that point I was already like looking at ingredients and food because I'd done IIN. I was in the health space. I was vegan. I was a, I was a label reader already, but only for food. Yeah. And so, um, I started looking in the ingredients in, or the, you know, what goes into the manufacturing of things like baby's mattresses. And I was fucking outraged. I was Mm -hmm. incensed. I was so enraged to learn that like, here we have these toxic chemicals that are used in a baby's mattress where a baby's sleeping 18 hours a day with a face up against it that are neurotoxins. Mm -hmm. Like what? And so that kind of fire was lit underneath me. And then as I was looking into this like resistant weight loss issue with my clients, I stumbled into this field of, of, uh, environmental chemical, uh, this class of environmental chemicals called obesogens, which are chemicals that mess with metabolism in ways that predispose people to gain weight or to have a hard time losing weight. And I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Wait a second. At this point I was like 10 or 15 years into like my health journey and reading all the books. Yeah. And I was like, why have I literally not heard anybody talking about this before? Right. So that was the I, real I wanna, turning point where I was like, this kind of feels, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I just feel like this is like the moment, right? One of the key moments where like some of the dots are yeah. connecting from your index cards to obviously your dad's work and not that he, you know, it, it was his field in some ways. And then you had this yeah, sort of epiphany yeah, yeah. around you know, um, a new baby being born and then weight loss resistance. And it, this is kind of where honestly, like it gets really juicy and interesting for, for listeners, because I feel like, and also it's good. So good for me to know your story too, like that you were, you kind of grew up as like, fuck the man, fight for the little guy. And I feel like taking on the yeah. industry of environmental toxins is a massive feat. That's, a, that's, you're, as, that's as big as you get. It's as big as you get and you're fighting yeah. the man. And I think that there are people in your field, you know them better than me, but you're one of the very few health coaches and voices and functional nutrition and medicine that are as consistently active in talking about obesogens and everything like that. So I guess, um, tell us where you are or how far, how the road has been for you since that first epiphany moment to where you are now. Um, your business has grown so much and changed, but like, what's it been like fighting the man? So, you know, it's, it's funny because I don't, while ultimately, so I'll, I'll preface this. This was, I came up with like a mission statement years Mm -hmm. ago and it, it kind of got to the root of the, the, um, kind of sneaky way that I'm trying to take down the man. Cause I'm not, I am not the person that's doing advocacy work and, and going to Congress and, and pushing our policymakers. Like that's not the way in which I do 
or define the only way to do activism. And so the mission statement that I'd come up with was, you know, my mission is to encourage and inspire enough individual people in the world to make changes and demand change so that industry has no choice but to change in response. Like mm-hmm. that ultimately was always the goal. Like let's have a wave of people that are demanding transparency, that are more conscious and educated about the materials and the products that they buy, the ingredients and the products that they buy, um, and 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 wanting more transparency and demanding safer products. And mm-hmm. you know, certainly I'm not the only one that's been doing that work over the last decade, but the landscape of um, this conversation has shifted so massively in the time from when I got started to now. And, and we see that the demand for change has in fact trickled up, not down, mm-hmm. but trickled up to large retailers, Costco, Walmart, Target, CVS, um, all of those big box stores saying, oh, okay, well, our customers are wanting this. We're going to create policies around restricting certain chemicals in in some of the things that we sell. Um, and then mm-hmm. that has a, a ripple effect outwards to manufacturers. Cause if you want to sell in the store, you better clean up your, your stuff. And so, you know, I think th- that's been really exciting, but you know, I honestly, it, since, so I really pivoted my business in um, 2012, in the beginning of 2012. Um, and it was fascinating because uh, it didn't feel fascinating at the time. So my nanny job, which I'd had for six and a half years, um, abruptly came to an end. They were having some financial issues and they're like, we, we love you, but we can't afford to pay you anymore. So I was like, okay. And they're like, we'll give you two weeks. And I was like, okay, fuck. I live in New York city. I have <laughs> rent to pay in New York. City. Right. Right. Okay. And you know, what had happened was even though all during this time I was you know, learning how to run my business smarter. I was doing business coaching programs for people in the health space. I was learning how to do, how to create a group program, but I wasn't actually doing it because there was a complacency there. Like I had money, I was comfortable. I didn't have to hustle and bust my ass. And so then that job ending was like, well, Laura, you better shit or get off the pot because you have to pay rent at the end of the month. And so I hustled my ass off and I created the framework for my very first course. Um, it was geared towards health practitioners. It had a terrible yeah. name. Tools for teaching toxicity. Thought alliteration. I remember. Was cool. I it's took not. it. I loved yeah. it though. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was it was good for what it was, but you know, and it was like forty seven dollars if you sign up early and ninety seven dollars, yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. But I had like eighty students in my first class. Eighty, which is like That's a lot. Oh, that's Actually. a lot. And so I made yeah. like, you know, almost seven, $8,000 that month. And I was mm-hmm. the most money I'd ever made in a month ever at the time. Right. And so I was like, right. I think I'll be okay. Yeah. And I did that in two weeks. Yeah. Like I just made that happen in two weeks. Girl, so I, was like, oh, I think, okay, this is like the, this is it. When a fire right? gets lit for you, <laughs> I feel like watch out basically. A little bit. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, when I get, when I get something in my mind that like, that's the thing I want, like I will stop at nothing to get the thing that I want, whether the thing is important or not. I'm like, I want that couch. Like I'll, I'll make it happen. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so from 2012 to now, like certainly my business is massively different, but in terms of how that journey was, it was both really easy and also the hardest thing I've done right? Mm -hmm. At the same time. Mm -hmm. And it was really easy in that, like, 
you know, everything just flowed and I, I, I got really good, really quick at listening to the people that were paying me money that wanted to learn from me and saying, well, what else do you want to learn? And like, how else, where, where do we go from here? Cause like, I can't just teach a $97 course, a four week course over and over again for the end of my days. Like that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a next step. And so, you know, the, the next step ultimately always made itself known. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't always the right next step. I've retired courses. I've, you know, because if they don't make sense anymore, um, whatever, those things have evolved. Um, so in that sense, it was easy. Um, in, in the, from the actual mechanics of running the business, that was hard. Because like, I don't mm-hmm. know what the hell I'm doing. Like I said earlier, everything I'm doing, I'm doing it for the first time. I have to figure out what a merchant account is. What the hell's a merchant account? Oh, that's how you take credit cards. Well, and then you, you know, and then you need a gateway account. What's a gateway account? So every question begat like a thousand questions, other questions. Yeah. Yeah. And so I got really good at, at, um, understanding. And this is something that I still, um, there's pros and cons to this, but it was really important for me to understand the mechanics of every facet of what I was doing. I didn't have to do the thing, but I had to understand how it worked. That's just how my brain works. I'm the person mm-hmm. that will take apart a DVD player because I'm like, I got to fix something's broken. Let me just disassemble it and figure out how to do it myself. Hmm. You have such a scrappy spirit and I feel like this is coming <laughs> out new for me in some way, like just cause I'm hearing all these details and, uh, oops, sorry, phone ringing. It's I can't. Okay edit out stuff. Stop ringing. Um, you have such a scrappy spirit, which is just so fun. I feel like you're on my team for life. If I need to start some shit and change the world, which I may need your help at some point. Sweet. I'll um, help you. I love it. Awesome. I, I don't know. I feel like there's, I, I'm kind of curious where maybe this all goes back to this meticulous nature of how you watch your dad do his business, but sort of, you know, well, our joint mentor, Andre Nakayama and friend taught us a lot about sort of a root resolution approach, like find the root cause, find the root cause. And I applied that a lot to athletics. Like I remember thinking I can't learn how to shoot a three point shot and be really great at that until I master a shot from two feet away from the rim. And I can't run a mile really fast until I have great form. And so I just always remember like taking it back to like the fundamentals and the basics. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I find that to be like super palpable in your story. So I'm interrupting your magic, but I go back to, I love the quote where you say like, you need to know the mechanics for everything in your business. You don't have to do it, but you need to know. And and then talk about like, how did your clients help guide the evolution of your business? Cause it has evolved. Right. Well, so, so in terms of the, the, the topic of like understanding the mechanics, I think that's just a, a practical thing when somebody has a business, because, you know, if you want to, so I, I, um, I'm very much a a control freak for better or worse. I think it served me in a lot of ways. I think all of these things, the scrappiness, the attention to detail, it all is probably rooted in trauma. Like if we want to be real, it's rooted in Mm -hmm. like, Oh, that insecurity in childhood. And I need to take care of myself because I'm not being taken care of elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so I think, honestly, Mm -hmm. frankly, it's all rooted in that. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think those things, if channeled appropriately, can serve you. If you, um, well, if you take a beat to go, I I recognize where that came from. And that's not good, but it served me in this way. 
So yeah, I don't know. That's like a well, I would say dive. I think it's a plug for a really big thing. I talked to another guest about this recently about being a few guests, actually it's come up often because so many of us are in our fields because of trauma, because of shit that's been difficult or neglect or things we wouldn't necessarily say on our LinkedIn page, but it's motivated us to be who we are today. And so there's a difference between trauma motivation and empathy motivation. And so at what point, and, and maybe take a second to think about those two concepts of trauma motivation and empathy motivation, which to me, I think of trauma motivation is like, you know, I, um, I got in a car accident I got really sick and injured and I decided like, fuck everyone who is irresponsible with drunk driving and I'm going to go save the world. And it could come off with a charge of just like, I'm right and you're wrong yes. and we're just going to fix everything so everyone remains perfect and safe. But empathy motivation, I think, has a deeper, more consistent, sustainable approach to to change. It's more malleable and adaptive, um, which to me, I think your work very much speaks to. So um, how do those two concepts sit with you? And as you think about your life and the work of, um, you know, environmental toxins? Yeah, I mean, it's, this is the first time that I'm kind of being presented with that empathy motivation concept, but I think it, it and comparing it to that or contrasting it to trauma motivation, um, you know, I think there's, if I had to like map it out and I'm a visual person, my brain works in visual analogies and, and, you know, the, the logo for my business is a Venn diagram because I see the world through Venn diagrams, like, oh, where are mm-hmm. these two things and how do they connect? And, and what is, what that, what does that intersection look like? So, um, if I were to kind of plot this on a line graph, I would be like, okay, so the, the trauma, um, uh, motivation is underlying so much of what I do. And then at a certain point, it's like, a like a, like a, a, a musical composition, right? You've got your bass note that's holding it. And then all of a sudden this melody comes in and it changes mm. the direction. And that's where I feel like that empathy part comes in. Cause it certainly wasn't like, I don't want to say it wasn't always there because you know, the whole vegan, that whole thing yeah, came that's... from a place mm-hmm. of empathy, that whole looking at the world and saying like, wow, it's really fucked up that we send all our garbage to, you know, these, these uh, developing nations to deal with. And you've got little kids picking through our e-waste being exposed to toxic metals. And like, here we are going and buying our, like going to get my new iPhone. Like that whole, that was all rooted (laughs) in empathy, right? Yeah. 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 Is, you know, me, um, as I need to get a t-shirt that says Laura ruins everything because I feel like I don't think you're ruining anything. I I just, I don't think you're ruining anything. I just think that you have a brilliant mind and I'm also imagining everything as you're saying. And I'm just thinking like, again, there's so much that we do unconsciously here in America from a consumption perspective yeah. that yeah. totally fucks with the world in ways that your work highlights in sort of a micro way that we we really don't know. And that's why I love your work because it brings another layer of awareness to like how we can show up better for this whole ecosystem we call the planet. Right. <laughs> um, so, okay, continue yeah. with the empathy part. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I'm, you know, and, and, and this is my, my thoughts are a little kind of evolving as I'm, as I'm talking, but, you know, to follow that like musical analogy, it's like you, you, you know, the, the, whether it's the melody changing or a, a chorus coming and going is that I feel like things kind of oscillate between empathy and, and empathy, motivation and trauma motivation. Like the mm-hmm. empathy motivation in a way is always there because that's like, that's the whole reason why this, why this topic, 
right? So it's like, let's separate the topic of what I do from the mechanics of what I do. Okay. The mechanics of what I do is where the, the, I think the trauma motivation comes in. Like I, it, it, maybe I could have been doing something else that wasn't empathy anchored. Does that make sense? Well, like tell the me mechanics more about of running a business the mechanics. The mechanics of running a business. Right. But it's the, it's the underlying, this is not okay. That is what motivates the nature of the work that I do. Mm-hmm. But the detail orientation, the, all of the mechanics of how mm-hmm. I make this topic, that all comes to me clearly rooted in trauma and mm-hmm. wanting to make sure that I'm safe, I'm taken care of, that everything, mm-hmm. you know, when you're in a, a situation as a child where there's so much uncertainty, you become the person in many cases that um, A, future plans and disaster plans. Like what's mm-hmm. the worst thing that can happen? And let me run that scenario in my mind so that I'm prepared for if and when it happens. And that's like major anxiety. That's major trauma. It's not cool, but it's a defense mechanism where you're like, okay, I'm going to, this is how I'm going to stay safe and stable. And so in a business, you do that, you disaster plan. Yeah. Or you try, right? Yeah. And so that's the, that's kind of how I'm separating it out. It's like the, the what from the why. So I'd like to, can I dive into that a little bit? Yeah. So it sounds like the the mechanical element of running the business, you run a very successful, uh, consistent business, which is amazing. It has multiple touch points for users, for clinicians, and also for, um, you know, moms down the street or parents down the street who want better education. Yeah. Um, and when I think about, you know, effectively, you kind of alluded to growing up just with your dad, almost like a single parent household. Um, was it sort of yeah. this um, sense of, was it wanting approval from him or other everyone around you or get just this ground under oh, yeah. your feet chase of security, like money, money is tight or consistency is like hard to get in our household. Like what were you chasing by, or what are you chasing I in this sort was, of approach? Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably all of those things, right? There's always that approval factor. Um, I think there's also that, um, you know, independent, independence. Um, that was, you know, I remember my dad and this was so, it's kind of fucked up, but, um, and it was super mixed messages, but I remember him saying, you know, at one, a couple times in my life, like never depend on a man mm. to support you financially. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. But then fast forward other points in my life, he would say this kind of jokingly, when are you going to marry a nice rich Jewish doctor? Hmm. And I was kind of like, well, wait a second. Like those things literally are the opposite. So which is it? And How so did that I just, you? you know, I, um, it certainly affected me in, I, I just, I didn't have great relationships, like personal yeah. relationships, um, romantic relationships. Cause I just, you know, and that is something that I'm, you know, I still, you know, we're all challenged by, I think, um, yeah. you know, I, uh, uh, to some extent, but like, I I think that just that experience of instability growing up mm. in an unstable space where, you know, there was self-soothing going on because it wasn't happening mm-hmm. in my household. Right. And so right. I, I by by default, I had to become an independent person and take care of myself. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, like, I think it's easy to look back on those things that we obviously can't change and look back on it only negatively. 
because it's not great. It's not ideal, but I, I, I can't separate that experience from the fact that this independence has served me really, really mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I am appreciative and grateful for that. I, 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 frankly, I would have loved to it to have evolved in a different way, but like, we can't change the way that these things happen. So I can at least acknowledge like, okay, that, that wasn't great, but here's how it helped me. Yeah. Um, it was an adaptive, and then I think the next adaptive experience that, for you. Yes. Yeah. And then I think the next step of that is as you kind of grow into yourself more is go, okay, well, this is how it served me, but here's how it's not serving me. So I get to unhook from the destructive ways or the harmful ways in which having that obsessive control freak attention to detail, everything on my terms, like you can start to go, okay, it served me really well. And here are the places where it's, it's not helping me. And I'm going to learn to parse these, this behavior out where appropriate. And that's an ongoing process. Like I haven't figured that out. Yeah. I don't even know that it's worth figuring out. I just think it just evolves and kind of becomes its own experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it sounds like, so I'm curious about, again, this is a really cool topic, empathy and motivation, which very clear that your desire to help people, especially the people who don't have a voice in this country, other countries from even just a health environmental perspective has shaped your fire. And then the mechanical sort of trauma, a mechanical way that you approach your business in a very successful control, like just a frankly professional way is definitely influenced by childhood and that sort of instability. Um, have you unlearned how to run your business and think about it from a more okay. like agile feminine energy? Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I, I'll tell you, um, so I'll, 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 I'll contextualize this a little bit. And I know, you know, this, uh, you, we've talked about this before. So my business started in really in this iteration um, of doing the toxin education in 2012 when I did that first course. Mm-hmm. And um, and you may remember this if you were one of my students and on my mailing list at the time. But I was in mm-hmm. a, a really um, pretty unhealthy relationship with somebody on and off for, at that point, close to 14 years. And I was in that window of starting my business, I kind of had this epiphany like, hey, here I am educating people about toxins and I'm in like a thoroughly toxic relationship. So like, maybe I need to end that. (laughs) Like maybe I need to make space to do this work a little bit more authentically. And that was a really unhealthy codependent relationship, but you know, very much loved this person. And so ended that relationship. That was frankly quite devastating for me. And so I spent that year coping with the loss of that relationship by working my ass off. I worked six Mm -hmm. to seven days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day. Like that was my coping mechanism. And it helped me make, you know, my business make, you know, whatever it was revenue wise that year. It was a huge right out of the gate. And I was like, dang, well, Mm -hmm. the following year, that person um, uh, took their own life and Mm -hmm. that super fucked me up. Like, and so I spent the next year, and I, and I actually, that was right after, you know, we had our, or right around the time if we met up in 2013, cause I remember we met up right before I moved to Oregon. To so it would have been right yeah. around that time. Um, yeah. but that happened right as I was moving from out of New York to Oregon, partly just cause I needed to shift in energy because I spent so much of my space with this person yeah. and then, you know, they passed away and that was fairly devastating. And so I spent the next year of my business doing the same thing, 
right? Mm. Coping with time passage by keeping myself busy because if I wasn't busy, then I had to be with my grief. And Mm. so like, there's another facet of that, like trauma is what helped propel my business. It wasn't healthy and for me. And so what ultimately happened, not entirely as a result of that, but I think a, a, a significant part of um, the the situation was from that experience, that trauma was, you know, mm-hmm. I moved to Oregon and then within a year, um, my health started to massively nosedive and mm-hmm. I was having, you know, major HPA access issues. I had insomnia. I had the worst brain fog I've ever had in my whole life. It felt like, um, it felt like, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it felt like, but I would, you know, drive down the street to go to the grocery store. And like literally every two or three blocks, I would forget where I was going. Like that's how bad the brain fog was. So it was scary. Yeah. I've been there. It was like scary. Yeah. And then, you know, I just remember going to the grocery store and literally wandering around the store with an empty cart because I just didn't know what I was. I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just leaving the cart in the middle of the store and just going and then sitting in my car for 10 minutes trying to remember how to get home. Even though I lived on the same street that the grocery store it was like, it was bad. It was really bad. Yeah. And yeah. so um, that forced me to chill out on my life. Like, you need to, I mean, my doctor's orders were, I need you to work two days a week, maximum two half days. Like you need to be retired. You need to go for walks. You need to get a coloring book. Your nervous system needs to like have a beat. Stop. Yeah. So and I'm so, going to, yeah. So that pause really there. forced me. Yeah. 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 I just want to yes. pause there because so many people listening have been through something like this where their nervous system in response to whatever the dysfunction was, mold or grief or whatever, just says enough. Um, So you, you effectively, again, uh, had to, had to unlearn how to operate in your business and you had to unlearn literally how to take care of yourself in a whole new way. So everything, Everything. it makes sense to me when you said earlier in the interview that every time you do something, it's, it's a hundred percent the first time you've ever done it. Right. And so it's like, because every yeah. couple of days, every couple of weeks, like we are presented with a new set of oh um, interventions or just like things that mess up the way that we operate or help sometimes the way we operate. But yeah, it's it's really profound what you went through. And I remember talking to you quite a bit when you were going through a lot of that health crisis. And, you know, a lot of it was from mold. I know you talk about that pretty publicly. Um but yeah. it also seems like there was grief that, you know, what, what we know about grief now and how it affects the well, nervous system and the brain. that's what kickstarted it, right? Right, right. I think, honestly, that's what kickstarted it because, you know, when you have that kind of prolonged um, stress, anguish, grief, followed by all of that HPA axis dysfunction stuff, your immune system gets a yeah. real swift kick in the balls, right? Yeah. And so that's yeah. ultimately what happened to me. And then, you know, I got pneumonia twice. Like I was super, like, I've never, I literally had pneumonia twice in a year. Yeah. Wow. Um, Because my immune system was just garbage. And then, and then I couldn't, like, I would get a little bit better. I was working with so many different doctors trying to figure out what is going on. Um, And I would get a little bit better and one of the symptoms would go away, but then I'd get a different thing going on. And, um, and, um, and then after a couple of years, we figured out, you, I had mold exposure mm-hmm. and the mold had reactivated my Epstein-Barr. So now I have yep. chronic Epstein-Barr. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that is, I just had to 
really shift how I was doing my business because I didn't have capacity. I couldn't do it. And so I had to triage real fast. Mm-hmm. What are the what are the customer client um, deliverables that I'm committed to? And let me do my best with those and then nothing else. I mean, at the height of my sort of adrenal disaster situation, I would have one two-hour call in a day and that would be the only thing that I could do. So I would like, okay, right. here we go, Laura, do the call, try to be as present as possible. And then I would sleep for like two hours and be like, well, that's, yeah. that's all I can do. And yeah. that was really hard. When, I'm, when I was used to working 10, 12 hours a day. Yeah. And so, you know, I had to navigate that. Um, and I did my best and it was all fine. Like it all ended up being fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just just so curious. (laughs) Yeah. In the business, you're still doing amazing work, but you know, I I've struggled with some elements of like mold exposure and like brain fatigue and brain inflammation. I've had to do a lot of stuff too, like neurofeedback to get my body back to back to baseline, literally like couldn't get up past noon, even though I was in the health industry. No, no amount of matcha that I would drink would allow my brain to work for (laughs) more than 45 minutes. And so I really resonate and empathize with mold exposure and effectively brain trauma. Um, I, I just want to like, cause I remember I struggled with value, like, and I had a lot of anxiety that I couldn't produce, that I couldn't stay in meetings, that I couldn't finish basic emails. And I felt so bad about myself. I, I wasn't yet aware that there was something I needed to fix physiologically, but like, and grief wise, but did you feel, did you struggle with like your sense of value and your sense of ability to like show up in the world? Or what were you struggling with in that transition to a totally different way of showing up? I don't think, I don't think my thinking was that far out. I think my thinking was very like, I just need to get through this day. And I, I, I mean, look, I feel that the, who am I to be doing this? Who am I to be having this conversation? You know, I don't have a science background. I'm not a toxicologist. I don't have, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of back that that's there all the time, a hundred percent of the time, always. Mm -hmm. And I just, I'm like, I just got good with it. I'm like, that's fine. And I definitely had a turning. There was an, an, an experience that I had that shifted my perception of value in that realm that was mm-hmm. happened previously. But in terms of this kind of downshift because of my health, I don't think I was ever bringing my value into it. It was just like, what do I need to do to make to survive yeah. my life bearable right now? And yeah. to survive and to do the best yeah. that I can and, you know, just, yeah. just, and, you know, one thing I'm grateful for is because of the, um, the audience that I serve, which are health professionals, the empathy around, cause I was very public about like, you know, the, the suicide, the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the adrenal fatigue and all that stuff. I was very public about that because I knew my audience knows exactly. Yeah. They what, get I'm, it. what I'm dealing with because many of them have dealt with it. And so, um, I was, I was overwhelmed with, um, understanding from my students, peers, colleagues, whatever, because they're like, yeah, I've been there too. And you're doing great. And we understand. And so mm-hmm. I'm grateful for, you know, to have a community of students and followers who get it as opposed to people that are like, we don't care about your problems. Give us what we want. Like that's not the vibe of the space that I'm in, thankfully. And so I didn't really feel bad. I felt like, oh, it's okay for me to do what I need to do because even getting that reassurance from my, my students 
that were like, just take care of yourself. We just want you to be okay. So that was really sweet. And, and I didn't yeah. know that I needed that as much as I did, but I did. So it sounds like your, um, health crisis that you went through those years where it was really struggle, really struggle with grief. And again, your nervous system sort of in adrenals shutting down, um, that really shifted the way that you show up in your, in your business from like a mechanical perspective. Um, I'm sure it's continued to evolve and, and shift, but, um, I, I'm curious because one thing you and I have always talked about, because you and I are super passionate. We're like problem, go solve it, fix the world. We have a yeah. lot of, um, sort of swagger in some ways with the things that we care about. We really will speak on them. And I remember you and I talking about this once. We were both like kind of jaded from the health space though, the or jaded from the sense of like perfectionism within the health space. So I'd love for you to talk about that because I know you've had to do it personally and then like unlearn perfectionism in the health space. And then you also work with people who are maybe a little bit too obsessive around environmental toxins in their home or whatever it may be. So I'd love you to kind of like take the mic on that because it's such a huge thing that impacts the nervous system and it impacts um, relationships too. If we, if we are a little bit too tightly gripped on our vision of health. Yeah. I mean, I think this was something that, um, you know, the way that I talk about environmental toxins and health in general has shifted so much from when I got started to now And some of that shift came from the process of talking about it, right? So like Mm. if um, the way that I explain this to my students is moving out of hypothetical and into actual, right? Like hypothetically, Mm -hmm. you can think, you think, oh, I know all the things until you actually start doing the work, whatever that is. And then you're like, oh, actually, this is different than I thought it was. And so for me as the more actual that I was doing, meaning the more actual work I was doing and educating and talking to people, the more I started to say, okay, so this kind of hard line approach of, you know, these, I I mean, I, uh, up until very recently, the language that I used about a lot of exposures were like, these are non-negotiables. And Mm. I've even softened on that in the last couple of years, because I've, you know, become quite aware um, uh, that, you know, there's a tremendous privilege to even having the mental resources, let alone financial resources, to even think yeah. about these things. And so yeah. it's unfair to say something is a non-negotiable when somebody doesn't even have access to fresh fruits and vegetables and you can't be like, oh, fragrances in your yeah. shampoo is not non-negotiable. Like, okay, well, that's yeah. ridiculous. No. And yeah. so, yeah. Um, you know, there's a couple of things. One is in the beginning of my work, I didn't really have a lot of nuance in the way that I talked about chemicals, it was, this is bad. That's not bad. This is, this is dangerous. It's toxic. Um, and, and I didn't really give a lot of thought to the nuance around, well, what does toxicity actually mean? And what's, and does the context of an exposure come into play? And, and there's a lot of yes, ands and what ifs, and it depends. And Mm -hmm. I didn't Mm -hmm. have that in my initial, um, sort of exploration of this space because I just didn't have the experience. Right. So it was hypothetical versus actual. And so as soon as I started doing Mm -hmm. the actual, I was like, and then diving more into the science and talking to scientists and reading, you know, uh, uh, paying more attention to the nuance. um, I started to realize like that nuance is actually where the, 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 the heart of this is in, in communicating science because all science is nuanced all research is nuanced 
Um, and you know, the I, I, I've said this for years is that the most common answer to any question that I get get is it depends. Mm-hmm. Like, it depends. Like I, I, there is no black and white answer. And so like that really has shifted. And I think it's one of the things that has um, certainly helped um, uh, me in my business and help how people perceive me in a way that that I want people to perceive me, which is being more balanced being more nuanced, not being hardline, not being rigid, you know, the, the sort of tagline of my business, um, in since the beginning really has been like, let's change the things we can control. So we worry less about the ones that we can fully recognizing that stress and anxiety are also a form of toxicity because of the damage that they can do to your nervous system, your immune system. And so it doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense for people to get hyper fixated on everything being super pure and a hundred percent non-toxic. And I just don't, I've relaxed so much. Um, it's like the more that I, I mean, it's the, frankly, it's the Dunning-Kruger, right? So if you're familiar with yeah. the Dunning-Kruger effect, this is, you know, the less, you know, the more you think, you know, and the more, you know, the more you realize you don't know. And, and right. the more that I learn, I'm like, Oh, okay. That's why everything depends because there's a thousand variables that I'm aware of that other people yeah. aren't aware yeah. of yet, hopefully. And that, that colors the, the, you know, whatever it is, the recommendation I'm making or how I talk about something. Um, and so that certainly has, has evolved. And I have had to do a lot of um, kind of real time learning um, in terms of, paying close attention to how people respond to information that's being delivered to them. Mm. And this is something that I try to teach my students. It's like, you have to be able to read body language and tone of voice, because if somebody, if you're sharing some piece of information and you are overwhelming them, you need to catch yourself before you really tip over the edge because you're going to lose them. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be able to say, Oh, okay. And then learn to course correct and interrupt yourself and say, you know what, I'm going to stop here. Yeah. And I I can see that like you're starting to get lost in the weeds or overwhelmed or anxious. Like talk to me, what, what is, what's happening right now? Because Mm -hmm. that as a, as a practitioner, as an educator, whatever you are, um, I think that's a skill set that people don't think about. They just end up um, soapboxing as I call it, where you're just like, I'm going to just tell everybody this thing because I want you to know it. It's not about you. Well, that I would say that you're talking to. That I would say, Laura, is is trauma motivation, trauma education. So like Adam Grant wrote right. the book um, most recently, Think Again, and he talks about the three ways of like connecting with people. I think there's like you're, um, geez, I'm going to forget. You're a preacher, a prophesizer, and uh, the third I forget. But he's arguing that we all need to think and speak like scientists, which means present data, reanalyze the data, come back again with a new hypothesis, try it out, reanalyze. And so I just think that like, when I started too, right, it was like, sugar is bad, no question about it, don't ever eat it. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, well, if you're an ultra marathon person, or you got a birthday party, you should have some sugar. And so, you know, you just soften a little bit in your, your sort of delivery. But I do like that you're talking about this sort of unlearning about how you educate and how you show up for people, because that, that is like the missing link of execution is if people feel that you're listening to them and connecting with them, they will, they will apply. But if they're being talked to, they're just like, okay, like 
they're well, going to talking like, to versus talking at right. And like with, when you're yeah. talking at somebody, which is, I think what happens a lot with people, especially new when they're, you know, they're stepping into the health, any space, but I see this in the health space because that's the space I'm in, you know, where mm-hmm. somebody's really passionate about a topic, but the, it, it, it is anchored in their own interest and mm-hmm. not looking at it through the lens of the person that they're actually trying to connect with. And sure. it, it, I mean, it's like, those are the people at parties where you're like, great. Okay, nice. So I'm going to go walk over there and go to like Bye. Go to the bathroom or something <laughs> because you're just, you're not even trying, you're just talking at me and I'm, this is sucks. Yeah. And so yeah. that is a, unfortunately, I feel like that is an experience that people have to have mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in order for them to be able to course correct. Like mm-hmm. you kind of like, you know, what is that? You got to crack a couple eggs to make an omelet. Yeah. That's maybe not the wrong right I analogy, agree. but like you kind of have to fuck up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, the, and as I tell my students, it's like the learning is in the doing, like mm-hmm. I can't teach you ex- the experience of what you're going to have working with a client on whatever program, like the, the doing is where you actually do the learning. Everything mm-hmm. else is hypothetical. It always goes back. It's hypothetical or actual. Mm-hmm hypothetical you can wax poetic and oh it's going to be just like this it's going to be great and then like you don't actually know that until you do it and it could be a colossal failure yeah but that's information right it's like failure not feedback right that expression um I love it but the willingness I I think go ahead the willingness I was just gonna say like the willingness to course correct and change so, your change your approach or your language when you see that it's not connecting is important. Yeah, I think it's um I think it's everything for evolution basically and sustainability in any business. But yeah. um one thing that stands out to me is like in order to course correct and kind of go through the gnarly times of beginning a business in the beginning or any new venture or even any new relationship, it's like you have to have a level of grace looking back. <laughs> on yourself. Like, Oh, I love myself in the beginning who was just clueless and running down New York with really adorable, like colored brochures and telling everyone that my thing was the most important thing. Cause I did that too. Right. But there has to be a level of grace. There has to be a level of compassion in order for all of us to evolve into the next version of, of who we are. Um, which I think does require, like you, you can't skip that step. You have to go through it. You have to go through the awkward. And I think that helps people more than anything. If they stay with it, you know, it helps them. Um, well, it's, I want to, I can't remember the, I can't remember who the quote is by that says the best way, the best way out is through, I think, is that like a Walt Whitman or something? Probably the best we way out is through it. Yeah, something like that, you know, and that's, I actually I had that as like one of those inspirational magnets once upon a time. Um, because I feel like that is it, that it, you know, whether it's grief or figuring out how to work with a new client or how to educate on a topic um, you're going to, the best way out to the other side of figuring it out or success or whatever it is, is just through it. You got to do it um, and be willing to do it and be willing to fail and fuck up. That's right. Fail and fail better. Um, so I'd love to know if two last questions for you as we close, because I feel like this has been just like yeah. an incredible download of your life story and also like a little bit of like a business, <laughs> um, a business sort of like uh, crash course in just the, I, I, what I, what I feel like is actually kind of like a spiritual crash course in how to run a business actually, which has been really cool and added bonus for us. Um, what are you actively unlearning these days? These are constructs, ideas, beliefs, habits that you know you're trying to shed or re reimagine. 
Oh man, that isn't so. That's interesting, especially for where I am right now. So you know, you, we briefly mentioned mold um, and that whole um, shit show of having mold exposure. I had mold in the last two homes that I lived in. That is has been making me sick. I'm still not better. I'm just in the beginning stages, really, of that recovery process. And I literally just moved from the Pacific Northwest, where I've lived for the last um, eight years, to New Mexico, where I know like very few people by myself um, to go to the desert to kind of dry out and and heal. And that has been a, you know, I. it's funny because I had a bunch of people um, tell me how brave I was to do this move. And I'm just kind of like, okay, I don't see that as a brave thing. I mean, if it's brave, great, but like, it's not what you're doing. You know, when you're in a situation like this, you don't say like, ha, what's a brave thing I could do. You're just like, what do I need to do? And like, I'm just going to do it. And I'm, what are the, what are the alternatives to sit and do nothing and stay sick? Like that's, there's not, doesn't seem brave to me to do that, but I appreciate the, the, the reflection, right. That like, it's a hard thing to do. I wouldn't say it's a brave thing to do. It's a, it's a self, um, sustaining thing to do, right. Self, um, uh, uh, protective thing to do, but it's, it's just what you have to do. And so, you know, I had to get rid of a lot of the things that I own. That was hard. Um, not everything, but a lot, you know, I had to sell a bunch of furniture and, 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 you know, I think the thing that I think about often is, you know, I think all of us have at some point in our lives, we have this, you know, oh, this is what my life is going to be like. And Mm -hmm. when I'm this old, I'm going to have this. And when I'm that old, I'm going to have that. And I think that is like, I've, you know, you said earlier, you know, that, you know, reflecting that like I've taken a fairly unconventional path. And I still feel, and I feel that that's very true for me. Um, You know, I'm 44 years old. I feel great. I mean, there's still mold stuff that I'm dealing with, but like, I, I, I feel like I'm finally, maybe it's a forties thing, but I finally feel like I've crossed into the threshold that women in their forties talk about where they just don't give fucks anymore. They're like, yeah. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh, I think I'm here. I think I'm in a space where like, I don't give a fuck. Mm -hmm. And it's so liberating in a lot of ways. And so a, I think to, to specifically answer your question, one of the things that I am more recently unlearning is the need to give a fuck. That's just, I, I just don't. And, you know, for people that maybe have followed me on social media in the health space, um, they've been witness to some of that over this past year and a half that we have lived through some tumultuous times and seen some pretty horrific behavior from large swaths of this population in this country. And um, I have no problems making my position and my boundaries clear in that space and those, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, uh, uh, racist behavior, sexist behavior, um, uh, uh, conspiracy theory thinking, you know, all of that stuff that is really unfortunately pervasive in the white centric wellness space. Like I have a problem with that because it's not okay. And Mm -hmm. in the past, previous to now, I think I would have been really 
um, self-conscious or concerned, oh, that if I speak out, this is not what I do for work and I Mm -hmm. shouldn't be using this platform. And what if I lose people? Mm -hmm. And I just kind of reached a place in this past year and a half where like, I don't give a fuck. And Mm -hmm. I actually did a post. I mean, I think this was shortly after everything that happened on January 6th, where I was like, okay, this is, Mm -hmm. I've just not okay. Yeah. And I posted some, some pretty like line in the sand. Like if you believe this and if you believe these things or adopt these views, like my space for education is not for you please go get educated somewhere else. Like I'm not here to serve you. And, um, I had like, you know, a thousand people unfollow me on Instagram and I was kind of like, well, the trash takes itself out. And then looking at my metrics, I was like, great. Well, I just gained a thousand new followers in the same time that I lost. And I, I, I was like, okay, that's cool. But like, I didn't bat an eye at being able to stick a flag in the ground and saying, these are my values. And if you align with this, great. And if you don't, you you can see yourself out. And I think that comes with some age and some wisdom and being in that magical forties window where you just don't give a fuck anymore. And it feels great. And I love that. So like, I'm I'm definitely in the space of unlearning that and, and shifting what I thought my life would be like at this time Mm. by this age. It's something different. It's whatever it is. And, you know, there's a lot, a lot of time that I've spent kind of beating myself up over it not being this way that I thought it would be. But like, it's okay. It's all good. And it'll yeah. get to wherever it needs to go whenever it needs to get there. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, I love that you don't give a fuck anymore. And it, it really honestly just feels like you're you're finding your voice and you're using your voice. I think you've always had your voice, but you're using it really, really more often and in really profound ways that maybe a younger you wouldn't have done. So I I love that. Keep, um, keep saying the hard thing, my friend, because you have a fire and a scrappiness about you that the world needs. (laughs) Well, I'll, you know, we brought up Andrea Nakayama earlier. I'll bring her up again because she had said something to me. This was years ago when, um, you know, when in, in the first kind of, iteration of the courses that I was teaching, I was really following somebody else's template. Hey, here's how you do a course. I was like, okay, great. I'm going to do that once or twice. They're training wheels. Then in the process of the doing, right, I'm going to figure out what works for me, what I like and what I don't like. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember I was chatting with Andrea about, you know, oh, some course launch that I was doing that I was struggling with. And because I was really um, sticking too strictly to somebody else's framework, And what she had said to me was, um, just go rogue. You do so much better when you just go rogue. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Thanks. And, and I feel like that, I just remembered that because I was like, oh, you're right. Like I'm, I think I'm smart enough and responsive enough and observant enough to be able to see something unfold, learn to react to it in a different way on my own rather than taking somebody else's like, Oh, you have to do it this way. You can do whatever the way you want, whatever, whatever works for you. Um, but I, I definitely feel like the freedom in saying like, you know, I'm the captain of this ship. I get to do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. It's fun. You certainly do. I I kind of feel like it just makes it fun. 
Yeah. I kind of feel like in hearing your story, you've had, a, again, a rogue scrappy voice in you the whole time. So I, I hope you continue that. Um, so on the School of Unlearning, I ask every guest this. Um, this idea of unlearning is not a new one. It's been happening for centuries and centuries and will continue to happen. But everyone has a really cool, unique way of viewing it and um, a cute, uh, sort of a, a new way of like approaching unlearning in their life decade by decade. So if I were to ask you what your definition of unlearning is, what would you say? I mean, I, I think I would, I would, to me, it's an, an inevitability, right? Like it's, I don't know if that's a definition, but it's more of a descriptive, right? It's, mm -hmm. it is an un inevitability in any growth or for forward momentum. It is the thing that allows for the forward momentum and movement. Because in order, you know, I think of it like, um, again, I'm a weird visual analogy person of, you know, if you picture like a ball of yarn and there's a string going in and a string going out. Mm -hmm. And if you roll the string, one goes shorter, one gets longer, right? And so that, in order for that ball to move forward, if that's us, the the we have to constantly be in learning something new we are automatically unlearning something else like mm -hmm. to me like whether those are equal or not right you might unlearn a lot more things than you do learn at any given time but it's to me it's it's a they're not mutually exclusive they are the same right. mm -hmm. in in a lot of ways because in the act of learning something new you are by nature by default, I think it's how I see it, unlearning something else, whatever your yeah. previous iteration of that is. So to me, it's just like a, an, an inevitability that's happening, you know, all the time, whether or not people recognize that that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's the thing that I think people would benefit from the conscious level thinking of like, oh, I'm doing this differently because. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so I love that. I don't it's know if that's like, a definition so much as thoughts. <laughs> girl, it's amazing. I love it. You've actually added a new layer of understanding it for me and also to everyone who I talk to. I feel like we're just building a sort of a book of unlearning here. And what I think is important too is like that you said that we are unlearning all the time. It's happening, even if we don't, if we know it or not. And I think that's why conversations like these and conversations we have with friends and family who we trust or clients, whomever it is about these sort of pivotal moments where we have turning points, where we struggle, where we, we have to go through it in order to live through it. I think that's the talking of these things is where we begin to, you know, connect the dots and, and see what we have learned and unlearned. Otherwise yeah. we, we can absolutely go through life sort of subscribing to the next model, taking someone else's blueprint and just continuing to live the life without, you know, autonomy. And so Anyway, I think that's why your story is so important for people to hear, especially in, in your world. I hope they listen to this because it's, I think it, it will bring a new level of personal um, inspiration and insight and respect to the work that you do. And um, I know that they will be giving you high fives behind the scene as they're listening to a lot of your toning points here. So um, thank you so much, Laura, for coming on the School of Unlearning. You're an amazing force of nature, scrappy force of nature. And um, I can't wait to see you evolve. Uh, well, thank you. Um, this has been such a fun discussion and, you know, not one that I typically get to have, but I think whether someone's in business or just as, in life, which this podcast is, is kind of unintentionally or intentionally allowed for me, 
is um, a, an opportunity to reflect back and see how these puzzle pieces connect, because I think we don't do that, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're just so focused on looking forward that we don't often look back and say like, oh, how do these pieces fit together? And it's mm -hmm. kind of cool when you have the opportunity to do that. Um, so thanks. Yes, thank you. Hey friends, thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.